So, Father, thank you that um, thank you that that we are here, Lord. Thank you for this place. Thank you that it's warm. Thank you that we can fellowship together. Help us, Lord, to have a good discussion um, and to really see what you want us to see about Hezekiah and his life and how that applies to us. Um, Lord, you are an amazing God, and and we just want to know you better. I want to know you better, Lord, because I want to know better how to love you and how to worship you and and how to talk about you. And and so I pray, Father, for you to answer those desires of mine. You gave them to me, Lord, and so I know that you will fulfill them. And, and I'm speaking, I know, on behalf of everyone here that we want to know you better, Lord. We just want to know you better so that we can love you more. And so I pray for everyone here, and I pray for those who are not here, Lord. I pray that um, they will feel the lack of the fellowship um, and and that you will bring them back next week, ready to um, to do the final session of Hezekiah, to really see um, what it is we need to learn and take forward into our day. So I thank you, Father, for what you will do tonight, and I praise you, and, and, and we want to say we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so uh, what have we seen about Hezekiah so far? If you had to describe Hezekiah, what would you say? Yeah, he was faithful. He had, he had a purpose. Yeah, he had a purpose. He knew what he wanted to do. Yeah, he knew what he wanted to do, and he uh, he certainly started well to do it. What else about him? He was quite human. He got it wrong. Yeah, he was very human, and he got a lot wrong. Um, he had a real sincere heart for God. Yeah, he had a real sincere heart yeah. for God, and I think that's the key, actually. That even with his failures, even with the things he did wrong, he's talked about in uh, the end of his the sto- uh, account of his life, he's talked about his pride and how he actually opened up all his treasuries to show the king of Babylon and his emissaries, and which eventually would lead to the Babylonians um, uh, invading Judah. Um, but I think the big thing about him is that as soon as he remembers God, he turns to him. So always... He, he, he does get carried away with his own things and he does have pride. He's a very human person. Obviously, he's a human man, but he does turn back to God when he remembers him. And um, I think you could probably say that Hezekiah came to the throne of Judah for such a time as this, the same as you could say for Esther, um, uh, for various kings down through the history of Israel. You could say that they came to the throne for, at just the right time. Um, why was it just the right time for Hezekiah? What did he do or what did God do through him that shows it was just the right time for him to be on the throne? That was Josiah. That's his great-grandson, yeah. He did. He turned the people back. He stopped the apostasy. He, he, his father had closed the temple and let the temple run down, closed the doors to the temple and uh, had instituted uh, idol worship and he turned the people back. And that was the first thing he did when he took the throne. So it's a big statement. Um, you can imagine if you, was, if, you, if you take the throne of a country to, to make the temple your first initial act, the restoration of the temple, says a lot about where his heart was. So, uh, and what did he do, actually? What we read right at the beginning, that when he started and when he finished the temple restoration, he... Um, he instituted the feasts again and he, he called all the people to the feast. But who else did he call? Yeah, people of Israel, the people who had been separated. You know, the ten tribes that went north under um, <coughs> Jeroboam after Solomon's death. Um, they had separated from the two tribes that Hezekiah was ruling. And yet, and they'd done that centuries before and subsequently had been invaded by the Assyrians and taken captive. And so the people of those ten tribes left in the original land that they occupied were very, not, not as many as, obviously, the nation that was taken captive. But Hezekiah sent messengers to them and called them back to the temple. So um, what happened? How, how did people respond to that? It was mixed, very mixed. Only a few came back, actually. Only some of the uh, tribe of Ephraim came back to Jerusalem. Um, But he gave them the opportunity. Um, And 
before we move on then to the next thing that God did through, what, what do you think we're being shown there? Yeah, yeah. So if we start to think, I mean, on the Desiring Truth website, one of the things that we say on our purpose statement or mission statement or whatever is that we believe that God raised up this ministry for such a time as this. It's a very common, everyone takes that phrase, for such a time as this. But if we really believe that uh, as for a ministry and in each of us individually that we're here on the planet at this time for such a time as this, then what, what do you think it is that God would like to do through us, individually and collectively? Yeah, but think about Hezekiah and what he did. See, the tribes, the tribes, the ten tribes that had gone north, uh, separated from Judah, they were led by their king into apostasy. Jeroboam led them and he, he made the two, two calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And he said, you can worship here, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. Because he was afraid if they started to go back to, to the Jerusalem, they would start to permanently go back. And he would lose his kingdom. And so he, he, built, he, he built these two altars um, so that they could worship at those altars. And over, as I say, over hundreds of years, the people got used to that. And then eventually God sent prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom. They wouldn't turn back. And so they were taken largely into captivity. So look at the church today in the Western world and think about how the church is and how segmented it is and how big a section is actually in, not necessarily in total apostasy, but going that way. Because they're following leaders, teachers, um, doctrines that are not real. They're not true. And so they're being led away from the worship of the one true God. So why do you think Desiring Truth is here? Why do you think you're here? Why do you think you're looking at the word? Why is that happening? Yes, to bring people back to the Lord. And it's not, it's not the unbelievers first. You see, Hezekiah didn't send to people outside of the people of God. He sent to the people of God that had been separated and had been uh, led off into apostasy. So his main focus was to unite the people of God to worship God. And that's really, uh, when we think about the, the idea of revival, which is how we started with Hezekiah, he brought about revival in the land. Revival is the reviving of something that was alive. Um, it's not the reviving of something that has never had life. So revival doesn't involve unbelievers, at least not in its, in its initial state. It involves believers who have gone the wrong way and actually are in danger of going so far away that they actually are uh, in apostasy. So um, if we're existing for such a time as this, and we know that we live in a, in a church, in, 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 yeah, in a time when there is great deception, our first aim surely must be to know the truth, share the truth, live the truth, so that the believers see a difference in us. And so what was it that Hezekiah instituted, actually? What was his first thing? It was to um, rebuild the temple. And then he instituted the feasts. And what were the feasts? I mean, what was the first one that he, he, he brought back? Or, it was Passover. Passover and then unleavened bread. So he took them right back to the beginning. And he, um, he, he instituted, reinstituted the feasts of Passover and then unleavened bread. And Passover, all the feasts are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So Passover, what is, what is Passover a picture of? It's a picture of salvation, isn't it? Through the blood of the Lamb. It's the picture of our salvation, our redemption, out of slavery, into freedom, through Christ's blood. And what's the Feast of Unleavened Bread a picture of? Yeah, getting rid of sin. So that's what he instituted, first of all, was the rebuilding of the temple and then the bringing the people back to an understanding that they had been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, so a reminder of that, and that they were to live a, um, a sanctified, holy life. If we're attempting to call people back 
if revival is what we're saying Hezekiah brought about and we want to bring about or at least play our part in, what are the two big things then for revival to happen? Yeah, so that I would say that's the second thing, although it's probably they're intertwined. Yeah, that, but I think the big two big things about revival is the understanding that without the blood of Jesus, there is nothing, there is no salvation. So without Christ, we have nothing. And that knowing that and following Christ and being in him results in holiness. So if we want to be uh, useful to God in revival, what would our lifestyle be? Christ-centered. And holy. Holiness would be the hallmark. And so that's what happens with revivals that we've seen down through the years and on into our century. You see revivals happen. Well, you see people praying for revival at the moment, huge revivals, but there's no holiness. There's no desire even for holiness. See, Hezekiah wasn't totally holy all the time. He didn't get it right. He made a lot of mistakes. So it's not the actual... Uh, outworking of holiness that is necessarily what we have to get to. It's the desire for holiness that pushes us on and pushes us on. And if there's no desire for holiness, there'll be no revival. And you can only have the desire for holiness if you truly have come through the blood of the Lamb. And so um, there is this great turning, this great turning back to God and uh, for us in our time, turning back to Christ, the understanding that without him I'm lost, and then, but that with him I am to let him live out his holiness in me. Um, so Hezekiah uh, brought people back or offered them the opportunity to come back, and um, it also, his, his work gave, God, gave an opportunity for God to show his power. Do you remember what happened when the Assyrians were at the gate and they were not at the gate but at the borders and they were saying they were going to come and uh, overthrow um, Hezekiah um, he prayed and uh, what happened what happened to the Assyrians to the king who'd come Sennacherib we well I'm, I'm talking about what actually God did when uh, Hezekiah is faced with the enemy, and the enemy is mighty, and much more uh, army than he has, and he goes with Isaiah to the temple, and he holds out the letter, do you remember that Sennacherib had written? Um, and he says, this is what they're saying about you, God. And what's God's answer? He reassures Hezekiah yeah. that, that they come out of victory that's it. Yeah. Yeah. He well, actually, he sends a destroying angel, which, who yeah. destroys the army, and then Sennacherib goes back, and he's actually killed by his own family. And all of that is done by God. Basically, Hezekiah doesn't do anything, and that's what God does. So it's it was the opportunity for God to show through a man who trusted in God what he could do. So now you're building up a picture of revival that is really kind of taking on flesh because here you have this man, not a perfect man, but a man who wants to honour God and who decides to make his first priority the building up of the temple, the people of God. And so he calls out to people to come back and worship God. He makes it possible for them to do that in the place that God's chosen. He, he um, institutes, reinstitutes the feasts. And, and he's, he's providing a way for them to come through the blood of the Lamb and to be holy. And then, when they're attacked by the enemy, he's saying, we're powerless to do anything about this. And so God says, yeah, I know that. And so God does it. Can you imagine the effect on the people that that would have had? And in our day, can you imagine? So actually what we're saying is that signs and wonders followed holiness. They followed holiness, not the other way around. And so God had, I mean, God can do anything at any time. So when I say he had the opportunity, what I mean is he, Hezekiah's actions opened the door for God 
to pour out his power. And, um, and the principle of that is you know, so important for us, really, um, that the desire for holiness has to be there, and that the understanding that we can do nothing, that God has to do it. Um, and then, in, even in that act, God shows the truth of the fact that he honours those who honour him. So Hezekiah honoured God in everything. He, he set about bringing the people back. He offered even the outcasts, even the people who had gone very far. He instituted the feasts. He got people back to worshipping God. They were praising God. They were celebrating. Everything was good. The enemy comes. He says to God, we can't do anything. Look what they're saying about you. God sends his mighty power, does an amazing miracle, and honours Hezekiah. Because what you read is that, that God exalted Hezekiah and that he prospered and that he, he was successful. So, um, you, you know, I won't go over it again, but we have this sequence that happens uh, when your desire is to honour God through the way he has shown us to honour him, then he honours those who honour him. And um, it's quite an amazing thing. And what we see in that is that nothing and no one can come against God and that nothing and no one can stop us worshipping God in the way he wants us to worship him. And that we simply choose to do what God has called us to do, and he takes care of everything else. Um, and that's both humbling and awe-inspiring <laughs> at the same time. Um, so, um, Hezekiah is exalted, his fame spreads, um, at the end of chapter 32, we read that, um, uh, as I say, that um, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his deeds of devotion, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper section of the tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honoured him at his death. So here was a man who, who started well, and finished well. He had a few bits and pieces in the middle, but he, he, he started and finished well, and he was honoured in his lifetime. But what we're going to look at tonight is really the middle part of his life. Um, we saw when Sennacherib first came, we looked at this last week, that he, he made a few mistakes in the beginning, tried to buy him off, and then uh, had to rethink that. Um, but now what we're going to see is that um, at the same time all of that is going on, Hezekiah becomes sick. He, he gets ill. So we're actually going to look at Second Kings for the um, corresponding passage. So Second Kings, chapter 20, in verse 1 to 11, please. And if someone could read those verses, that'd be great. Take a long fix. So they took the blade on the board. So they took a blade on the board. 
Thank you. Very strange section, really. You know, you have to say, a very strange section. And there's lots of different opinions about Hezekiah's prayer to, for healing and why he prayed and had he sinned and was that the, the result of his sin. And I, I actually think it's really difficult to come to any conclusion. Um, and I think that there are some clues in here that um, change the way that we might think about it. So. First of all, um, uh, even if people sin, it doesn't, that sin is not the only cause of sickness. Jesus said that in John 9, that when he was asked about the blind man. Um, he said, you know, it wasn't his, him, his sin or his father's or his parents' sin, it was that, so that the glory of God might be revealed. So sin is not necessarily an indication, uh, sickness is not necessarily an indication of sin. But um, what we are told is that in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and those are the days when Sennacherib was coming against him. So what you do know for sure is that God doesn't spare you from one thing just because you're facing another problem. In fact, sometimes mm -hmm. it seems like everything comes at once. Mm -hmm. um, and Hezekiah prays um, that, uh, that he, God would heal him. Um, when you, in verse 2, I think it is, uh, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Sorry, that's verse 1. Set your house in order, actually in the original language, means appoint your successor. So your house is your royal family. Set your house in order, appoint your successor. So actually, what do we know at that time about Hezekiah? Do you know how old he was? 39. About, yeah, he was 39. And um, what else do you know about him? He didn't have any male offspring. He didn't have any sons. So it was impossible, actually, for him to set his house in order unless he took someone from outside his family and made him his heir. So, um, what's his response to what Isaiah tells him? What's his response to Isaiah's message that you better set your house in order because you're going to die? He prayed. He prayed, yeah, but what specifically did he say? He reminded God of what he'd done. Yeah, and, and actually, he says, I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart, and I have done what is good in your sight. Now, to us, that sounds like pride. It sounds like, well, wait a minute, you're supposed to bless me because I've done the right thing. But actually, that's a promise of God in the Old Testament. That is his promise. If you live righteously, I will bless you. Yes, and with long life, I will bless you. If you look at Proverbs, I think it is. Proverbs, um, where is it? Proverbs 3, Proverbs 9, Proverbs 10. Length of days, long life was promised to the righteous. So actually, what Hezekiah is saying to God is, but this is your word. You say those who live a, long li uh, live a righteous life will live a long time. And yet you're going to tell me that without an heir, I'm not going to live, I'm going to die. So surely you've forgotten me. <laughs> you know, that you've got the wrong man, almost. Because if I do die, your promises are not true. Do you see what I mean? So it's not as simple as we might look at that and say, well, you know, he shouldn't have prayed for that because that was wrong. He, um, he does come back to God with God's promises. Yes, he is. And he's saying, yeah, but didn't you say this? And, you know. Um, Hezekiah, I think because 
what was happening to him was completely out of his thinking. He, he couldn't understand it. And he obviously didn't want to die. No, I don't think so. I think there was possibly sin in his life, because he wasn't. we know he wasn't perfect. We know he did a lot of things wrong. So, um, But I don't think that's only the reason for his weeping. Um, I think mainly because he had tried to honour God, and he had desired to do the right thing, and he, and he didn't have a male heir, and all of that combined... Yeah, I think maybe. Um, he wanted to make sure that there would be a leader yeah. because he knew what was coming. Exactly, exactly. He wanted to make sure that they... Because, I mean, if he died, what would happen? Well, that, but also the Assyrians are at the door. So this is all at the same sort of time. So he, he has quite rightly could say, look, remember how I've lived, and, and behind that I don't have an heir, and look at what's happening. Um, now, we're obviously, all of it is just conjecture. None of us know. Um, but that's why I think it's quite good to look at the, uh, in the, at the original language, see what that actually meant, look at what was happening. And, um, and as I say, those in Proverbs, you can find a, a direct promise that if you live righteously, God will bless you. Um, so uh, I want to look at the um, account in Isaiah, because Isaiah the prophet writes about Hezekiah, um, and um, Hezekiah sings a song in Isaiah 38, which is quite interesting. Um, look at um, Hezekiah, uh, Isaiah sorry, 38, um, verse 9, from verse 9 onwards, because the first part of the chapter is just about what we've read, that um, Hez- uh, Isaiah tells Hezekiah he's going to die, or he's got this sickness. And then verse 9, um, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery... I said in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I roll up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I compose my soul until morning, like a lion. So he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. Like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I will wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live. And in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and let me live. Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to you, as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me, so we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. So this is Hezekiah's song of praise to God after he has been healed and been given 15 more years, which is actually what um, he's told he will have. How did God heal Hezekiah? Yeah, by his power. But how was that power displayed? Yeah. Yes, it is. I think it's so interesting, though, really, because it's a human remedy. Mm-hmm. God healed him and gave him fifteen more years. That the the text makes that really clear. He was going to die, but God gave him fifteen years. Mm-hmm. But he did it through a human agent. He gave, you know, he's put this poultice of figs on that boil. Um, so many things you can take from that, I think. But one of the things is that God, his power comes in different ways. He sent a destroying angel to destroy Sennacherib and the invading army. But he healed Hezekiah with a, you know, 
what we would call um, alternative medicine, you know, falters of figs and natural medicine. Um, and so um, uh, he spares Hezekiah and gave him 15 years uh, extra life and Hezekiah prays this or sings this praise. Um, and what does Hezekiah do in the last 15 years? That's the interesting thing really in this, in this account. What does he do with the last 15 years of his life? Who is born to him? Who's his son that's mentioned in, he has? Manasseh, yeah. And who's Manasseh? Very bad king. A very bad king. The most wicked king in all of Judah's history. Now you have to ask the question, don't you? Why on earth would God give him 15 more years if the son he would have would be the most wicked king in all of, in all of Israel's history? I mean, it's just an imponderable. There's just, I mean, there are, there are things in Scripture that you just cannot fully explain. But the wonderful thing about Manasseh is that he is listed in the genealogy of Christ Jesus. So the most wicked king in Israel's history actually turned back to God at the end of his life and is listed, as I say, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why do you think that is? It's perhaps the um, example of his father. Yeah, maybe. Something to, something to do with him. Yeah, you mean him turning back. Yeah. Oh, I see, yes, him turning back. Why do you think that he's listed, though, in, in the genealogy of Christ? Why? Because God takes There you go. Because God takes sinners. And he brought a saviour from a line of sinners. This is the most amazing thing. Jesus was 100% God and 100% human, and he had to be 100% human to fully represent us. He had to be tempted in all the ways that Manasseh was tempted, yet not sin. He had to be tempted to all the wickedness and unrighteousness of all of the people in his line and still be without sin. Now, that's amazing, actually, because, because, because he totally represented us, he knew every temptation that we have and he was able to not sin and therefore pay our price. Now just take that by extension into the Christian life. Who, who can live the Christian life? Because we have life through Christ, right? So we are Christians because of him. Who, who lives the Christian life? How do you live the Christian life? Sorry, it's, it's maybe a little bit convoluted, but we, you will see where I'm going when I get there. Yes, yes. The bottom line answer is we can't live the Christian life. No one can live the Christian life. We cannot live a holy life. I mean, it's impossible. We can't. That's why Christ died. If we could have lived a holy life with his help, he wouldn't have needed to die. So the, but the, the reason he died was because he is the only person who could ever live a Christian life. He lived the Christ life. He was tempted yet without sin. He, he honoured his father. He prayed all the time. He did everything right. And so now when we believe in him and are born again and we receive him by his spirit, what does he want us to do? Because actually what happens is when you become a Christian, you start to try really hard. Mm. You want to try really hard because mm. you know you're supposed to be holy and you know you're supposed to pray a lot. And you know you're supposed to read your Bible and you know you're supposed to fellowship together and all those things, or at least you start to learn them. And you try really hard. And when you try really hard, what happens? You realise you can't. And so you try a bit harder and a bit harder and a bit harder. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is that no one ever tells you you really can't live the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life. Only Christ can live it in you. And so the whole of God's shouting at us through his spirit is, will you just stop trying to live the Christian life and let me live that life through you, in you? I think so. I think that's part of it. Yes, definitely. Yes, yes, definitely. That's part of it. And, and the big one is uh, Paul's statement in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. 
But the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In fact, I've missed a phrase. He said, but Christ lives in me. So it's Christ who lives in us. And so what we have to get to is the understanding that because Christ died, I can't do it, but he can. So the more I surrender to him, the more he is able to live in me. So that means that my surrender, surrender is directly linked to my holiness. So I, I am at my most holy when I am at my most surrendered. Do you see what I mean? So now when you think about revival and you think about when God is going to come in power, when he, you know, what he wants us to get to before, as we're praying for revival, as we're seeking revival, as we want to turn people back to him, what is the witness that we are to give? What are we supposed to be living in front of them? Surrendered. A surrendered life. You don't have to live the best life, you know, the holy life, the, the really do everything right life, because you can't do that life. It's us living a surrendered life that is the greatest witness to the reality of God. And, and in that surrender, you won't get everything right. You'll get a lot of stuff wrong. Because we surrender and then we take back and then we surrender and then we take back and then we try a bit and we forget and everything else. And so we are. We are a mixture of flesh and spirit. We have the spirit at war with our own flesh. And so the more we can understand that, that actually we are to cease striving and know that he is God and give over our lives to him, the more we are able to witness to him. And I actually think the more we do that, the more we know that we are God's children. Do you see what I mean? So Hezekiah could say in this song of praise, he could say, um, it is the living who give thanks to you, as I do today. A, son tells, a father tells his sons about your faithfulness. So he is going to pass on to his sons the faithfulness of God to him. And part of that will be, I didn't get it all right. In fact, I got a lot wrong. But God, but God, but God. And if we want to leave a legacy at that, and that was the subtitle of this course was Leaving a Legacy. If we want to leave a legacy, if we want to uh, be part of the way that God revives the church in our day, it has to be that we understand that we can't live the Christian life, that Christ must live it in us and through us. And that as we do, he will witness to the world. He will witness to believers or who have walked away or people who thought they were Christians and aren't really, whatever, whatever you want to say. He will witness to unbelievers, to believers, to people going into apostasy. He will witness to everybody that he is God. He is God. And um, Hezekiah um, began this work, really, because his father was against God. You'd have to go right back to David to find a king who actually did well. And so Hezekiah is credited with, with beginning a revival that will carry on right into the, in the days after Christ's death and resurrection. He, he showed the way for the revival that would keep on repeating through their history. Josiah, his great-grandson or his grandson, um, what did he do? King Josiah, do you remember? He found the book of the law in the temple. He came to the throne. He was eight years old when he came to the throne. And it says about him in 2 Chronicles 34 that he set his heart to seek the Lord. He was eight. Eight. How does a boy set his heart to seek the Lord when his own father is one of the wicked kings of Judah? Because he has a heritage from his grandfather that... This is what people of God do. This is how they live. They make lots of mistakes. They do a lot of things wrong, but they keep coming back to God. Their desire is to honour and serve the Lord. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and apparently, I didn't know this. I've, I found this out as I was researching some of it. Um, that in the last 15 years of his life... Uh, Hezekiah had a group of people, scribes, called the men of Hezekiah, and they were responsible for putting together the Old Testament writings at that time. And apparently, in a lot of the um, 
Hebrew manuscripts, you can find the letters H, Z, K at the end. And um, uh, that he devoted the last years of his life into putting the scripture into order. So can you see how that, just that, even though he went wrong, even though he showed all the temple jewels to, to the Babylonians, all of that, he also was a man who, who, who cherished the word of God and who revered the word of God. And so when his grandson comes upon it in the temple and it's been mislaid and, mis- and forgotten, he's, his first initial act is to restore that book of the law and to cry out to God and, and, and for, for mercy. Um, oh yeah, he did. He did. He, he just no, no. He didn't yeah. sell it, but he showed it to them, and he was very proud of his gold and his silver in the yeah. temple. And um, yeah, um, so Hezekiah wasn't wise in all of his acts. He, he, as I say, he didn't do the right thing all the time, um, but he uh, honoured God. And God honoured him. And, um, and, and in the end, when uh, the Babylonians come, uh, we read about him showing off to the Babylonians. So it's, we really are given, over and over again, the completeness of his character. That, um, you know, if you look at, um, go back to Second Kings 20, um, and read just 12, verse 12 down to... Uh, let me see, verse 12, uh, down to verse 19, please. Somebody read those verses. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift, because he assured of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his storehouses, silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine oil, the finery, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say, and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Thank you. So, a pretty awful statement, really. The word of the Lord is good. He's been just been told that some of his descendants will be made eunuchs, um, probably Daniel and, and his friends, and uh, and yet he can say, well, it's going to be fine in my day. And I think you see in Hezekiah this kind of mix between the passionate zeal of someone who really wanted to go after God, and then the the picture of someone who lived in a palace and found it easy to be distracted by his wealth and and the ease of his life. And I really think that's a picture of Western Christians. <laughs> I think it's so easy for us to get distracted by the ease of our life and the, and the blessing of it, uh, the material blessing of it. Um, we, we do have, you know, in comparison to other parts of the world, we have very, very easy lives. And we have um, material blessing beyond anything that we could have imagined, really. Um, God will say to Mo, through Moses to the Israelites when they go into the promised land, he says, when you, uh, when you get into the land and you live in houses you didn't build and you reap crops that you didn't sow. Um, and then a couple of other examples, he says, watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. 
And I think that's a real temptation and one that many, many, many Western believers fall prey to is we don't watch ourselves enough and we do get drawn into the ease of life that we have. And, um, and because of that, we lose our wisdom and our discernment and it, it becomes difficult to see what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's false. And yeah, go ahead, Jane. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think we mm. do have to mm. be really aware of that. Mm. And, um, when we're speaking with unbelievers, I mean, obviously, you know, we're called to to um, give the good news. But you know, yeah. How much treasure do you share? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, because the, I, I certainly have had times when it's been on the tip of my tongue to say something. Yeah. And I have. I think it's a really interesting um, comparison, actually, be between um, someone like Hezekiah, who lived in the days before the death and resurrection of Christ. So there was no permanent indwelling Holy Spirit. And so you do see this battle and this turning backwards and forwards far greater, actually, than you see in our day, because to the extent that we're surrendering to the Lord, and it is possible to surrender more and more, um, I think it's possible to see a much more, um, what, what would you call it, um, continuous flow of holiness in the life of a believer. Not that we'll ever get there perfectly, but I think that it is possible to live a life that is much more, um, there's much more victory in it perhaps than Hezekiah who was backwards and forwards. Um, but it's really interesting to me because Hezekiah in the first instance when we were introduced to him, when the Assyrian king comes to him, he tries to buy him off with the gold and the silver and the precious jewels from the temple. And we talked about the fact that he stripped the temple and he gave it away. But now, you see, he's not stripping the temple. He's just um, uh, showing it as if it's his. So now he's gone from using it to buy off and get his own freedom. And now he's gone to, well, this is all mine, so let me show you how great I am. And both of those, of course, are completely wrong. And both of them brought disaster, really, for him. Um, and so, um, but he was human, and, and he's remembered for uh, quite a lot of good things. He, he fortified the city, he brought water in, he dug the water channel, and, um, uh, and, he, and he brought about revival in the land and left a legacy for uh, people. But he was human, um, and as I say, he did a lot wrong. But I wanted to think about how his legacy moved on uh, and how we can see it in scripture. So we've already talked about Josiah, who found the book of the law in the temple and brought the people back to worshipping God in the same way that Hezekiah did. So that's a direct result of his grandfather or great-grandfather's work. So then if you go on, they do actually go into captivity in Babylon and then they're allowed back under Cyrus. How can you see the, the legacy of Hezekiah playing itself out when they're allowed back? from exile in Babylon. What happens when they're allowed back? They build a wall. Yeah, they build a wall. They go, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. And also? Temple. temple. They rebuild the temple. That's in their heart. That's what Daniel wants to do. Daniel wants to go back. He's, he's, he's too old to go back. He won't go back to Jerusalem. He'll die in Babylon, actually. But he, his heart is to go back and rebuild the temple. And so people go back and they rebuild the temple. So what Hezekiah's first focus was, when he came to the throne, to bring back the worship of God to the place it should be, that 
strain of thought, that, that idea continues through, it continued through Josiah, it continued after Babylon to come back and rebuild the temple. So then take it on from there. So then, you know, Israel's differing um, responses. So he, the people who come back after Babylon, they rebuild the temple. They, uh, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall of the city. They do a great job and then time moves on and they forget God and they go back to their uh, own ways. And then what, who comes on the scene? You have some prophets in the meantime, but then uh, who's the forerunner for Jesus? John the Baptist. And what does he call? What is, what is his cry? Repent. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God. And who is he crying to? Because this, this is really interesting. Who is he crying out to? Jewish. To Jews. He's crying out to the people of God. And what he's saying is, remember how this is supposed to be. Repent, turn back to God. Your worship of God is fake. It's, it's, it's idol worship in all but name. Yes. And so he, what he's calling them to is to come back to true honouring God. Now that's, that's what Hezekiah started. It was this, this way of honouring God the way he says he wants to be honoured, the way worshipping him, the way he says to be worshipped. So John the Baptist calls them back before Jesus repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Then Jesus, and then his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, and then Pentecost. And what happens at Pentecost? Yeah, and then who stands up to preach? Peter, and the other disciples are obviously all as well talking, but Peter stands up and preaches this sermon, and what is his message when they are pierced to the heart, and they say, what can we do to be saved? What's his message? Repent, repent and be baptised in the name of the Lord. Because he's calling people back to worship God the way that God chooses to be worshipped. So now, although the focus now is not the temple, the physical building, it's the temple who is Christ Jesus. So can you see how it's the same thing? Hezekiah, I know it looks like a stretch, but it's the same thing. Hezekiah instituted the right way, or reinstituted the right way of worshipping God. And all of those people after him reinstituted it in their own time. So now think about the revivals we've seen, the Welsh revivals, the, the great revivals in America um, before the Welsh revivals, all the revivals that we can read about. What is the single thing that those people called believers to do? Repent, 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 turn back to God, worship him in the way he wants to be worshipped. Worship him in the way. Now, how would we know how God wants to be worshipped? Jesus told us. And, and where would we go to find it? Yeah, in the scriptures. We'd have to look in the scriptures. How does God want to be worshipped? In spirit and in truth. That's how he wants to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped with a body, soul and mind. He wants to be worshipped with every part of us. He wants to be worshipped for who he is. How will we find out who God is? From the word. The Holy Spirit will, will mediate it to us, but we can only find out who the character of God through the word of God. So all of the worship that, that we see, or not all of it, but much of the worship that we see is not calling people back to worship God. It's worshipping worship. Do you see what I mean? Because it's just, it's raising hands and it's singing songs that are primarily about us. And all of the time God is saying, come back to me. This is who I am. I am powerful and mighty and sovereign and creator. And all, I am faithful and just. And it's not about you. It's about me. So all of the songs that we sing, we should be assessing, is this about me or is this about God? Is this, if I, if I sing this in the presence of other believers, am I calling them back to God or am I helping them to focus just on themselves? Now, I love, I love much of the modern music, so it's, I'm not against modern music. I love it. And I can get carried away with, I'm no longer a slave to fear. You know that song? Do you know that? I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. can't remember the guy's name, but anyway, it's out of Bethel. And, you know... 
I don't have to tell you what I think about Bethel, but I can say, you know, I love that song. I love that song, and it makes me, it stirs me up. But it's not true. The, the scripture doesn't say I'm no longer a slave to fear. It says I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. So can you see the subtle difference? Of course I'm not a slave to fear because because I've been set free, I'm not afraid. But it's not that I'm not a slave to fear and I'm a child of God. It's that I'm not a slave to sin and I am a child of God. And as soon as you put fear in, it's all about my freedom. It's all about me. And it's not really about God. Jesus didn't come to set me free from fear. That was a side effect of him coming to set me free from sin. Go ahead, Debbie, what are you saying? I was just going to say, talking about revival, is that so often you hear, oh, revival, we're having revival. But actually, it's almost been manufactured. It's not of God, because if you read the stories of the Welsh revival, these hard-drinking, hard-living men down the mines were on their knees Mm. before God, crying. Exactly. Nobody laid hands on them. No. Nobody said anything, but the Lord did it. Yeah, exactly. 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 I'm not against laying hands on people. I think sometimes there's a place for it. I think it's wonderful when God heals. It's wonderful when he does all that stuff. And, and some of the music, you know, it does inspire me. But it emotionally inspires me and not spiritually inspires me. And we have to understand the difference. So, um, but yeah, those miners, those hard-nosed miners, they were brought to their knees because of their sin because they saw their sin in the sight of a holy God. And that's what Hezekiah did. And that's what all the people down through history did. They elevated God so that when you elevate God, everyone sees him for who he is. Yes, exactly. Well, they just became humble in the sight of a holy God. Yeah. And that's what really, I really feel like one of the great lessons from Hezekiah's life is that that's what he showed his people and that's what we could see through him he elevated God he made as I say he made loads of mistakes he was not wise all the time but he elevated God in his thinking he made God big that's what A.W. Tozer writes about that a lot that um, I can't remember which book it's in I think I don't think it's in the pursuit of God actually I think it's in the, uh, the knowledge of the holy or something like that I, one of those but what he says is uh, the, I can't remember what he says now. I'm going to say something about God. But anyway, he says make God big in your thinking and you won't have any problem with who you are. If you elevate God, if you exalt God, if you proclaim God, you will see yourself in the way you should see yourself. And that's what will bring revival when we begin to elevate God and proclaim him. So... Um, the tremendous work that Hezekiah put into spiritual renewal, the, the work he did with the scriptures afterwards, the, the way that God worked through him, they were a kind of template, if you like, for subsequent revivals. And don't you think that's so exciting that we might be a template for the next generation? That we might be able to say, you know, that we had a part in, in what happens in 50 years' time if we're still here. You know, I heard someone the other day talking about um, his grandfather and he said uh, he doesn't want to be just a photo on the wall and his great-grandchildren go by and say, oh, who's that guy? He wants them to remember, oh, he was a man who knew God, who loved God, who served God, who followed God. He wants to have that sort of legacy for his great-grandchildren, his grandchildren. And I want that too. I do. I want that too. I want to be able to do, to live my life in such a way that it impacts the people who follow. Um, Not because they look and say, wow, she was so holy or, you know, she got everything right because, you know, (laughs) that will never happen. But so that they can say, wow, my grandmother, she loved God. She loved God. And I want to love God like she loves God. Do you know what I mean? And that's what we can do. We have the opportunity to do that. Um, um, And God honours those who honour him. 
Any questions? Wow, we're finished early. Any questions? I mean, I've got a question here. Isn't it about time that those in the church who have lost their way, who might feel as if they've been abandoned and are turning this way and that to look for God, isn't it time that we provided a temple, that we build up the body of Christ and call them back? You know, I mean, we live in such confusing times, especially for believers. It is so confusing. And really, we have the words of life. So, um, isn't it time that we who have put our trust in him show by our lives that God really is alive and that he really does save and that he really does transform and fill us with joy and peace? And isn't it time that we stood up and stood firm and lived in the victory that the blood of Christ wrought for us? You know, I mean, these are amazing days that we live in. And I don't know how long it will be before Christ returns. You know, it could be tomorrow, it could be 50 years. I might not be alive, I might be one of those dead who brought caught up in the air. I don't really mind much which it is. But I just don't want to get to the end of my life and think, well, all that time I wasted. Um, I'm Paul Rice, presenter of Office as Living Sacrifices. Mm. Is that the same as worship in, in I think it is, yeah. I think it's linked, yeah, definitely. Um, it's a hard one, isn't it? Present your body a living sacrifice because it's, yeah, because we're alive. We've still got to keep living, but we've still got to be the sacrifice. So um, that's quite hard to understand how to do. Um, but Jesus yeah, it's the dying to self, isn't dying it? Dying to self, yeah. Jesus says that he and Father are looking at those who worship in the spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it not all linked into sacrifice? Yeah, definitely. I think it is, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and I think there's probably much more in there, you know, than like the first initial re reading would give us. Um, because the only uh, living, I mean, Christ died to be a living sacrifice if you see what I mean so um, so we have to die to be a living sacrifice um, but yeah I definitely think it's I think it's all linked and in spirit and in truth really when you think about that both are equally important aren't they we have to, we have to worship him in spirit whether he means in the Holy Spirit or in our spirit I don't know um, both probably but also we have to worship him in truth we have to know what the truth is and and worship him that way and it matters and that's why as i said about the music that's why you know i mean i've got just a lovely niece and she knows the lord and she loves the lord and she has made sacrifices she has sacrificed she is a living sacrifice but she takes uh, friends to hillsong because it's an easy place to take non-believers and they hear fantastic music. But I'm not sure what the truth is that they're hearing. It's, it's a really difficult in our day. She wants them to know the Lord. She wants to tell them about Jesus. She does talk to them about Jesus. But she can't take them to 99% of churches. Because either the people there in the church are not believers. Or they're so weird, you know that they can't relate to anybody. So she takes them to Hillsong where they hear great music and it's wonderful, it's like a rock concert and they come out without hearing really much at all about the Lord. So there's, to me there's this great need to fill the void. To fill the void. And I think that's what God is calling out really. He's calling out people to fill the void in our time. Hmm? Nature has yeah. a vacuum, yeah. and I think there's been too much vacuum that's been filled with us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm. And I think it's this. I'm not. I'm not going for kind of. We can't be. We can't be perfect. Obviously, we can't. But I, when I'm talking about filling the void, I'm talking about living as if God is real. You know really living like he's real and he makes a difference and and I do have joy and peace you know and showing that and, and he yes exactly exactly 
And he did. I mean, and even he says in the next, in uh, that's chapter one, isn't it, of Philippians? And then in chapter three, he says, "Not that I've already attained it, but I press on, forgetting what lies behind." Oh yeah. So, Father, thank you that, um, thank you that you make it so clear to us, really, and everywhere we look in Scripture, it's so clear that that you are um, a God who is to be worshipped and honoured, and and we are to know you. Um, and, and, and what a great joy to be able to know you. Lord, um, so hard for us, Father, sometimes to really see how we can put into practice what we know that you're saying to us. So, Lord, we do, I come, and I think we all do, we come and say we just surrender to you, Lord. We want to be that living sacrifice. We want to uh, live a life that honours you and leads others to you. And we do want to proclaim your excellencies. We do, Lord. And we want to lift up the name of Jesus. And, but we know that we need you to enable us to do that. And so um, I pray, Father, for all of us. I pray for myself and everyone here that, that you would help us to do that. Well, that you would do that through us, actually, Lord. And that we would know that sweet joy of, um, of being in fellowship with you and loving you and living for your glory. And, um, yeah, so I thank you, Lord, for what we've seen tonight. And I ask, Lord, that if you bring us back next week, that we would be able to see the, uh, see the end of this little study that we've done on Hezekiah and that you would uh, finish it off for us, Lord, that you would point us to where you want us to go. And I praise you, Lord, and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.